This is the SSPX Podcast, delivering sermons, lectures, and the spoken word from across the English-speaking world. In the past month, we've tripled our listenership. We'd like to thank our new listeners, and we'd like to invite you to share this podcast with family and friends. In addition, rating and leaving a review on your favorite podcast app will help us immensely to reach even more people and spread the truth about traditional Catholicism. In this podcast, we're going to be speaking with a new guest for Questions with Father. Father John McFarland, currently stationed at Our Lady of Sorrows in Phoenix, Arizona, with Election Day just days away, we discuss misconceptions about voting, whether or not it's a sin to not vote, and also, does abortion trump every other issue on the ballot regardless? Also, Father is very knowledgeable about vocations, and he debunked a widely held belief about the call of vocations. Finally, we'll talk with Father about Holy Days and the confusion about Holy Days that has happened since the introduction of the new calendar in the Roman Catholic Church. The SSPX Podcast starts now. Well, we are sitting here today with Father John McFarland. Hello, Father. How are you? Doing very well, Andrew. Thank you. Good, good. Well, this is the first time we've talked with you, at least in this medium. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, in you know, 30 seconds or less, the elevator speech, so to speak, of, uh, of uh, w- what you've done and, and where you are now? I'm a priest of the Society of St. Pius X. I was, attended the seminary, um, St. Thomas Aquinas Seminary, when it was still in Winona, Minnesota. Okay. Um, I was ordained in, on June 15th in 2012. And then assigned as a uh, professor at St. Mary's College in St. Mary's, Kansas. I did that for three years. Afterwards, I stayed in St. Mary's, but was then made the principal of the girls' school in the academy there. And since August of this year, I have been the the prior and rector at Our Lady of Sorrows uh, Church Academy and Retreat House in Phoenix, Arizona. Fantastic. So, uh, teaching is something that you've been doing for for a while since you've been a priest. Is is that something that you necessarily enjoy? Or yes, I uh, I really do enjoy it. In fact, when I became a priest. I, I didn't think that I wouldn't like it, but I didn't ins- expect to enjoy it as much as I do. That's fantastic. That's great. It's it's a special vocation to be a to be a teacher, uh, and and to find out that you like it. That's that's a bonus, right? Absolutely. Well, um, speaking of vocations, Father, this is something that you're passionate about, um, and and that is uh, the religious vocations, specifically the priestly vocation. Um, could you? There's so many misconceptions, I think, about a vocation, uh, whether it's, you know, for young men or young ladies of, you know, kind of this calling from above or that you have to be a special kind of person in order to be a priest or a religious. Uh, What is what is you think the biggest misconception surrounding this? I think it's that that there's some sort of special act of of God's providence whereby he's determined in advance a special state for each one of us and our job is then to figure out what that state is and then um order our life accordingly and somehow if we if we don't figure out what that state is if we get it wrong then we're going to be in a in a bad place our salvation is going to be more difficult okay um and that's certainly not the the more traditional understanding um in the church it's something that became common beginning in the 18th century and then has carried over into our days um, and, uh, really what a vocation, there's a difference between, um, uh, priestly and religious vocation, certainly. Um, and for religious vocation in particular, you're talking about the, the evangelical councils, meaning that they are councils. They're, they're not commands. That is, they're what's recommended by our Lord 
poverty, chastity, and obedience in order to follow him more perfectly. As he says to the rich young man, if that will be perfect, go sell what thou hast and give to the poor and come follow me. So it's, it's, it's advised. And insofar as it's advised, it's, it's open to anyone who has the, the capacities to, to embrace it. So interesting. So, so this is not something where, you know, you're an 18 year old guy who's, who's going, I, I, I've got to either pick this or this and, and God wants me to do one of these and I better pick right. Otherwise the rest of my life is going to be absolutely horrible. It's, that's not what you're saying at all. No, it's not that it, there may be a special case where God, you know, has a, a particularly special calling mm-hmm. for a particular individual, but that would be the exception by far. For most people, it's a question of, of a, a judgment of prudence. Okay. To say, this is, this is something good. This is something within my, my power if I rely on the help of God. Uh, and I'm, I'm choosing to pursue it. Huh. So if, if someone has the, the aptitude and the abilities and so forth, that, that's, you know, they may be more, I guess we could say, predisposed to, to the priesthood. Is that maybe a better word of, of way of putting it? Well, for the priesthood, again, it's, it's a little bit different. So okay. a, there are more requirements for the priesthood, mm-hmm. and that is you have to have the, you know, the necessary academic abilities to, to study what you need to study. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have prudence whereby you can apply the principles, particularly in the confessional. Um, you have to give some, some proof of being able to, to, uh, to live a life of virtue before ordination. But then the, the call, strictly speaking, vocation actually refers to the priesthood, and the call does come through the church. So at one's ordination, the, the church calls, the, your name is read out, the bishop uh, it calls you to come forward, and at that point, that's vocation in the strict sense. And it's been applied analogically and confusedly to any number of other things uh, ever since. So, so the calling is, is when the, the deacon says, Adsum, I, I'm here, that's it. Mm-hmm. That's that's his response to uh, to the call of the church. Wow, that's fascinating. That that's uh... right in the priesthood too. There are there are greater requirements for it, but as long as one has the general aptitudes, one may may put oneself forward as a candidate by entering the seminary. Okay, very interesting. So, and so then moving away from the priesthood a little bit, uh, you know, there's the religious life. Um, so basically, anyone could could be a I don't really want to use the word successful, but anyone could be a successful religious, could be um, could serve God well in in a capacity in religious life, whether it be monastic or or uh, at, in the convent. Right. There are you know there are some people, but relatively few, for whom it's uh, religious life is not going to work. You know, people with with mental illness or oh, sure. or the like. Um, but there are even religious congregations that accept people with severe physical illnesses, for huh. example. Um, and obviously if you already have a state of life, you know, if you're already married, you're not, right. you, you can't just run off on your family and go enter religious life. But it is, the idea is basically that it's, that it's open to all, that our Lord is inviting all those who, who want a more perfect life to, to follow him. And, uh, and then, you know, we can talk too about the, the, the different religious orders and congregations. Somebody right. might be, not be cut out for one and be more cut out for another and so on. That's a different story, but in itself, the, the, the religious life is open to all of those who, who, uh, who are free to choose it. Very interesting. Well, this is, uh, like I said at the beginning, something that you uh, are, are passionate about. Um, and so this is something I'd like to revisit with you more in detail and, and go over different aspects of it. My mind's kind of whirling. So <laughs> thanks for doing that, Father. My pleasure. Um, well, let's move on to something a little more timely. Uh, this is right at the very beginning of November in 2018 when we're talking and 
we have the midterm elections for 2018 coming up here in a few days. All caveats putting in here of, as a priest and as a member of the Society of St. Pius X, you are not allowed to give advice on voting specifically and who to vote for and all that kind of thing. So purely on the matter of principles. One of our listeners asked a question, and that is, is abortion basically the the trump card, uh, no pun intended, for uh, for deciding who to vote for? Um, from what I understand from sermons from you, Father, and, and other priests and, and other literature, it seems to be because abortion is such a grave evil. But this questioner said, what if someone is a pro-abortion uh, candidate on, say, the civic level? We're sitting here in Phoenix. What if there's a city commissioner who's, say, a Democrat, most he's running for city council. He has no impact, really, on whether or not abortion is legal in Phoenix or Arizona or the United States. So is it still a grave um, evil to vote for that hypothetical person? It would certainly be be less so. Uh, I mean, we, I think we abortion really does have to be the, the issue. Mm-hmm. It's the one that pertains to the murder of innocent human beings. Um, and obviously, the farther away you, you get from directly being able to impact um, these questions, but there are, you know, there are issues and things that come up, um, you know, even on, on the local level where you're going to want, you know, the pro-life people in there in, in terms of, um, having a sympathetic reactions for a, for a pro-life protest okay. or can an abortion clinic be opened in this place or at this time or so like a zoning or something? Yeah. Even things, things along those lines I, there. So it's not. I think it would be wrong to say that uh, it has no influence whatsoever. And I think in general, we don't want to, to put in, into office people who uh, are comfortable with the idea of, of slaughtering unborn sure. innocent human beings. Um, is there a hypothetical situation that you could come up with where you might be able to, to vote for such a candidate? Sure. I'm yeah. sure it's out there where there's some, some good to be pursued, but that has to be the focus. What's the, the greatest good possible to be attained by, by the casting of my vote? Okay, so um, that that was kind of the next next point I was going to go down is is you know if someone is a pro-abortion uh, candidate or believer that that would speak volumes to the way that they perceive life. Yes, you know in, in general and and how they would uh, be a legislator or a, you know, serve in the government in any case. I certainly think that's true. Okay, yes. now um, moving to a more broad sense, so again the the just to be clear the trump card is is abortion so if someone is pro uh, is pro choice you know pro abortion um, is that something that is grievously sinful if if a catholic goes and places their ballot for that person and again i i know we can't go through every single right. you know but for for the majority of cases you know a random congressman in california or new jersey would a catholic be in danger of committing mortal sin if they did so if the the other alternative, the other candidate, um, is pro-life. Yes. Okay. So, so two pro-choice candidates, then it doesn't matter. You do the, the lesser of two evils right. there. You could, you could not vote. You could pick the one who's more slightly more okay. pro-life or, or whatever, or another issue could, could, uh, could come to the fore in, in such a case. Um, but, uh, but if there's a pro-life option, um, and, and again, the higher up in the government you go, the more mm-hmm. serious that is. Um, it is it is an obligation for for Catholics to to support those okay. who support the the natural law. Sure. Now to go a little bit tangentially on this, uh, there seems to be a misconception. I see this on on Facebook and message boards and and people messaging the sspx.org website. 
is it a moral obligation to vote if you're an American citizen? Or in what cases would it be? Sorry, I, I, right. I, opened, I asked a really <laughs> open-ended question there. Right. Sorry. In, in those cases in which your vote has a realistic chance of uh, altering the outcome, um, so in a presidential election, if you don't vote, is it really going to make a difference? Mm -hmm. Very probably not. Right. Um, but so that's that's a factor. And then um, again, the the issues at play. So is it I on the the level of of say your your representative uh, in the House of Representatives um, that's local enough where your your vote really can make a difference? Sure. Um, and if you have the a a pro-life candidate running against a pro-choice candidate, um, in that case, you would be morally obliged to, to, uh, to vote for that candidate. Okay. And certainly if there's a candidate who is, is truly, um, supporting Catholic positions on, on the natural law as a whole, and he has a realistic chance of winning, uh, then we have to support him. And if he supports Catholic positions on other things that, that only increases our obligation to, uh, right. to vote for him as well. The in, in your sermon uh, last Sunday, Father, on, on the Feast of Christ the King, you were talking about how you know we, we may never see the, the kingship of Christ in the United States or Western Europe in, in our lifetimes, but we have to set the, the standards. We have to get things, you know, we have to get the ball rolling. We have to do our part. Uh, and so that would be a case where if, if a Catholic is running for office, and, and especially a traditional Catholic, that would be something where you would want to vote in it, and it may be a moral obligation to do so in yes. that case, right? Yes. Okay. Because that would be furthering the kingship of Christ, which is the whole point of right. government, really. Right. And if you are faced with a choice of, of two um, candidates who are pro-abortion, for example, in that case, there would be virtually no obligation to vote because okay. it, it doesn't so much matter which candidate. They're, neither is good. Sure. And it's uh, unless there's some significant um, moral issue. Um, other moral issue that that uh, that's in the balance there, you wouldn't be obliged to vote. Okay, so who are you voting? I'm just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. All right. Well, um, so yeah. So we we have election day coming up, and we we've had a lot of questions on that. So thank you for clarifying that. Uh, wanted to move on to one other question today, and that is uh, regarding holy days of obligation. Now, there's a, a lot of confusion. Again, <laughs> confusion is is the big term that we get because we live in confusing times, right? Absolutely. We have the, the 1962 missile that we use. We also follow the 1962 ordo, which is the term for the calendar and, and the feasts of the saints. In previous times, there, are, there were some feast days that were holy days of obligation and some that have been moved to other Sundays. One of those a questioner asked was the feast of the Epiphany. Uh, they were saying, they were saying growing up and you know, in my home country, Epiphany was a holy day of obligation. Um, and it was changed, and now it's celebrated on the closest Sunday. So the overriding question is, at what point do we follow the calendar of the church as it exists today from, from Rome, and at what point do we follow the 1962 calendar? Can you shed a little bit of light on that? Well, we, we follow the 1962 calendar. Okay. The question of obligation is a different question. Okay. As to what, you know, we in the society can't impose obligations to attend Mass on, on our faithful on specific days that the church doesn't. Um, that's a, a different question. And the thing to keep in mind too, is that even traditionally, even, um, before 1962, there were different holy days in different countries. Okay. So there are 10 for the universal church. So you have the Christmas, the epiphany, the feast of St. Joseph on March 19th. You have the ascension, Corpus Christi, Peter and Paul, the assumption, all saints, the immaculate conception, 
in the Feast of Circumcision. Okay. So, there, so there's 10, 10 holy days in the universal church, but that can change from country to country. Right. So it, even historically in the United States, we, we observed six. Okay. So we did not observe the Epiphany, Peter and Paul, Corpus Christi, or St. Joseph. Okay. The other six uh, would be holy days of obligation in the United States. France, for example, only observed four as a oh, really? starting with the Concordat of 1801 under Napoleon. Wow. Um, in Ireland, the Feast of St. Patrick was a holy day of obligation. So most countries, um, including other English-speaking countries like uh, Great Britain, Ireland, Canada, um, Australia, I believe, they would have had Epiphany as a holy day, um, whereas we in the United States did not. Okay. And certainly we still do observe um, Epiphany on, on uh, January 6th. It is possible you know, to observe external solemnities where you say the Mass or whatever on the nearest Sunday, but that's really more a question of of helping people to to celebrate an important feast, okay, rather than than shifting around the the questions of obligation, which again is a a separate question. Okay, so I, I wanted to go back to something you said at the beginning, and this is something that um, I, I only recently learned, uh, and and it, it's not necessarily an obvious distinction, but it is a distinction. So we follow the 1962 Missal, but as as traditional Catholics, we still follow the legislation of the Church, which is a separate thing. It kind of all sounds the same because it all comes from Rome, but you know the fast and abstinence rules from 1983 and so forth, those are two separate things. There's legislation and then there's tradition. Is Am I getting that right? Right. I think we can say that. And we certainly do encourage people to follow the more traditional rules for, um, for fast and abstinence. Um, to fast uh, on an ember day is certainly a good thing. And, and in general, we could use a lot more fasting than sure. is currently obliged by the church, which is only two days a year. Right. Um, but uh, but again, we we in the society cannot impose obligations that the church is not imposing. Um, we are not uh, the hierarchy. So when we follow the 1962 missile, we're doing that out of tradition. Um, but we are only obliged to do certain things that the church has legislated. That's that's the difference between uh, a, a command, not a commandment of the church, but a legislation, a ruling from the church as a governing body, so to speak. Is that right? Right, and we and well, also we. You know, we hold to the, the, the 62 missile because not even necessarily because we like it the best or what, you know, there are th- things that changed in the 1950s that sure. I think most priests of society would agree are not, are far from perfect. Right. Um, but because there is in the 62 missile, there's nothing dangerous to the faith. Um, whereas in the Novus Ordo missile, there certainly is. Okay. Uh, there's a, there, there's confusion built into that missile about what the, the holy sacrifice of the mass is. And so we, we reject it on that principle. There's nothing inherently dangerous to, to one's faith or the like by mitigating the rules of fasting. Even, you know, the, the rules of fasting have been mitigated any number of times in the history of the church. Sure. You know, if you look at what the, the practice of even the laity during Lent was, you know, back in the early Middle Ages, yeah. it's, it's pretty frightening. That was intense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so could could you speak to that on the on the level of, and I, and I know I'm asking you to think to talk about what Archbishop Lefebvre may have been thinking or what his motives were, or maybe he spoke about this. Why did he pick the 1962 missile and not the earlier one, uh, like you like you referenced before? I think be, because he's he's trying to maintain uh, the principle of authority in the church. Okay, right? is that the the it's not a question of what we think is most desirable. Right, and you come across these these people out there on the internet who who 
pick and, you know, we should be using the, the 1570 missile itself without any <laughs> right. additions of feast days after that or whatever. But that Archbishop Lefebvre was recognizing that the church does have authority to make changes, even changes that we might not necessarily like. Right. Um, but there is no authority to, to put in danger the faith. Okay. Right. The whole, the whole structure of the church, it's, it's liturgy, it's discipline. All of it is ordered towards faith and charity, um, leading to our eternal salvation. Okay. And so I think that goes back to what many people outside of the Society of St. Pius X or those who don't really understand it very well think, well, you are just being rebels and you're just picking and choosing and you're doing this and you do what you want. And I think for the Society of St. Pius X priests and, and, and the Superior General, it's, it's more of a struggle trying to, you know, we're trying to follow the authority of the church. We want to follow the authority of the church um, in as much as we can uh, in every way possible. That's why, for instance, the, you know, the bishops uh, granting jurisdiction to some of our priests and, and you know, that, that issue, which is another whole uh, topic in and of itself, but that happened last year, that's, that was actually a good thing. We want to be within the church in as much as we can because we're Catholic. Right. Uh, it's not, we're not setting up our own thing. Right. And the church is, it has a divine constitution. Right. It was established by our Lord and in a certain way. It's a, it's a hierarchical and ultimately monarchical um, society. That is, it has the Pope at its, as its head and the bishops under him. And we can't, even though things are going very badly in the church at the moment and have been for 50 years, it doesn't mean that we can just replace that by, by doing what we want. Right? We're trying to, to maintain the principles that the, the faith is the most important thing, but the hierarchical nature of the church is part of the faith. This is, this is a defined dogma about the nature of the church, and we have to hold to that and respect it as much as we possibly can, given a very difficult situation. I'm glad that we have priests like you, Father, who can help us through that, because I would, uh, I'd be lost in about a second. So thank you very much. Well, um, that about wraps up the questions that I have for you this week, Father. Um, I hope to chat with you again soon, and I'd love to talk with you some more about vocations and perhaps some of the different... Uh, the different orders. That would be fascinating to dive into. Um, but thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Andrew. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe and rate the podcast so that more people can hear the beauty and truth of traditional Catholicism. For more news, resources, and updates, you can visit the U.S. District website at sspx.org or the English news website of the Society at fsspx.news.